Last week, we finished talking about the power of our words, and I had someone ask me this morning, are we still talking about the tongue this morning? I said, I know, I think we've stomped that one enough, and we'll move forward, but I did happen to come across something that I thought was interesting. Remember last week, we talked about how the tongue is a, is a fire, a wildfire. It's a small spark, but boy, it can set your entire life on fire, and maybe this week you noticed that. Maybe you said something this week, and you just thought, boy, I just lit a fire right there. There it went. Or maybe somebody else lit one, and you're still trying to put it out. I don't know. But I came across this article. I thought it was interesting that, that how, how the Bible is, is completely applicable to daily life. In Palmade, uh, Palmadale, rather, California, firefighters plan an aggressive air attack at first light Friday against a fast-moving wildfire that exploded in northern Los Angeles County, chewing through more than seven square miles of dry brush, forcing hundreds of evacuations, and burning at least three structures. There is zero containment, authorities said. Now, by the, week, the end of the weekend, they had gotten some containment. I checked it again. But isn't it interesting? We talk about that one Sunday, and then all of a sudden, boom, you see the power of what a small spark can do. And so I pray that, that in your words and your relationships, that you will be a person who, as we said last week, watered, waters down your heart with Scripture, with patience, with forgiveness, with, with apologies even, so that a fire cannot start from you. So last week, we, like I said, we finished up in, in James chapter 3, those verses where he kind of gives the definitive Bible teaching on our words. And so he shifts gears a little bit, and I'll show you that in just a minute. But I'd like for you to do something before we begin. You, you should have received a bulletin when you walked in. Now, some of you are note-takers, and, and you've already got it out, and you're ready to go, and you're trying to guess all the fill-in-the-blanks. I get that. You're already there, okay? But if you would back up just a little bit, or if you're not a note-taker, just play along for, for a second. I'd like to give you a little quiz this morning, a little pop quiz, and you will not be graded by me, so don't worry about it. I just want you to do the best that you can to answer as many of these questions as possible. All right, so on the back of your bulletin or in your bulletin, so just, you just make a spot you can write down some answers. A little Bible quiz this morning. I just want to see what we know. Some of the questions are, are pretty simple. Some are maybe cause you a little thought, whatever. So just do the best you can, whether, you, whether you're a Bible person or not. Whether you think, well, you know, I don't know a whole lot, or whether you think you're a Bible expert. How about that? All right, here's the first question. You ready? Name the four Gospels. Just write them down. The four Gospels. What are the names of those four books? The four Gospels. Write them down quickly. Abbreviate if you have to. There are four. I just said that. So if you stop at three, you got one more. All right? Take a guess. Name the four Gospels. That's question number one. All right, question number two. I'll repeat them all here in just a minute, okay? I used to be a teacher. I know how it goes. All right? I used to be a student as well. So here we go. Which book says, and here's the quote, the wages of sin is death? Where is that little quote found? Which book of the Bible? The wages of sin is death. You got a one in 66 shot. You're guessing the odds are against you. All right, here we go. Put these people in chronological order. So I just want you to write their names down. You're going you're gonna to try to number them in chronological order. That means when they were on the earth. All right? Chronologically. Ready? Moses. Paul. 
the Apostle Paul, Noah, and David, King David. Moses, Paul, Noah, and David. So they just put a number by them, and there's only four of them. So it's simple. One, two, three, and four. Which ones do you think were in the right order there? Moses, Paul, Noah, and David. All right, here we go. Fourth question. Was Luke one of these? Which one was he? Was he an apostle, a fisherman, a doctor, or a shepherd? Was Luke an apostle, a fisherman, a doctor, or a shepherd? Question number five. Maybe a little more difficult. In what language was the New Testament originally written? In what language was the New Testament originally written? Don't look off anybody's paper. I see you. Mm-hmm. Failing grades will be handed out for cheating. That's the bottom. I'll put it on your transcript. I promise you. I had a, I had a history professor that I remember. Everybody in the history department at Murray State had to take his class. He's since passed away, and and uh, and some people are thankful. And uh, but he was great. He he really was. I loved him. And and he would he would threaten us within an inch of our lives. He said, if if I ever catch you cheating. He said, not only will you fail that test, and all you have failed this class, he said, I'll go down to the registrar's office, I'll pull your transcript, and I'll mark on there, cheater, and everybody will know. So there you have it, all right? So what are we on? Question number six. All right, here we go. Is the book of Hezekiah in the Old Testament or New Testament? Is the book of Hezekiah in the Old Testament or New Testament? All right, let me run through the questions again, and then we'll... Well, I'll give you the answers, and you can see how you did. Name the four Gospels is question number one. Name the four Gospels. Number two, which book says the quote, the wages of sin is death? Number three, put these people in chronological order. Moses, Paul, Noah, and David. And then question number four, was Luke an apostle, a fisherman, a doctor, or a shepherd? Number five, in what language was the New Testament originally written? And then number six, is the book of Hezekiah in the Old Testament or New Testament? All right, here we go with the answers. The moment of truth. Some of you are nervous right now, aren't you? Oh, man. Palms are all sweaty and your heart's racing. You wonder, did I, did I pass or fail? And if you, if, if, if you fail, we'll still let you come back next week. It's okay, it's okay I promise. We won't throw you out. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Many of you probably got that one. Maybe you've, you've memorized those books before. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Which book says the wages of sin and death? That's Romans. Book of Romans. Put these in chronological order. The, the names were Moses, Paul, Noah, and David. They go Noah, Moses, David, and Paul. Was Luke an apostle, fisherman, doctor, or shepherd? He was a doctor. He wrote one of the Gospels, and he also wrote the book of Acts, but he was not an apostle. He was closely tied, though, to the apostle Paul, and went on him with lots of um, missionary journeys and so on. In what language was the New Testament originally written? It's Greek. Greek. In fact, if you want to get technical, it's a, it's a language called Koine Greek, which is sort of the language of the normal average person. And so that's the way that it was written, Greek. 
in uh, is the book of Hezekiah in the Old Testament or New Testament? That's a trick question because there is no such book. And so all of you got it wrong unless you realized it was a trick question. There you go. You got to throw at least one of those in. All right. So there you have it. You know, some of you, some of you hate me now, but because you were on a roll, you had them all. That's not even fair. I, yeah, I get it. All right, I get it. <laughs> you just throw that one out. You know, only five of them. All right, just pretend that last one didn't even happen. Some of you got a lot of those right. Maybe all of them. Now, there are probably others that maybe you got a couple. And there's probably a few folks who say, I just missed them all. I didn't get anything. Really, the, the point of that little exercise sort of leads into what we're talking about today. And it's this idea that, that knowledge, even biblical knowledge, knowing these facts, doesn't necessarily equal wisdom. Doesn't necessarily equal that you know how to make right and wise decisions. Knowing the facts can help, but it doesn't guarantee anything. Wisdom is also not some sort of guru status to where if I listed 500 questions on my little piece of paper, you'd answer every one, and you'd just sit there on your holy mountain and wait for folks to come to you and ask you questions about the Bible and life and church and work and everything else, and you just dole out answers because you're so incredibly smart. That's not what wisdom is really all about. I think sometimes we have the idea, the misconception that wisdom is about accumulating knowledge. The more you know, the wiser you are automatically become. And I think we also have the misconception that wisdom is sort of that person, man, woman, whoever it may be, that, that you just go to. If you've got a question, you go and they'll answer it. And we see that. We have a desire for things like that. Why is there so many why are there so many talk shows where the host just sort of doles out this sort of pseudo wisdom and so on? And so when we look at James this morning in chapter three verses 13 to 18, we're going to see that wisdom is not just the accumulation of facts and knowing some stuff, nor is it the ability to sit and have people come to you and you just give them answers, not the truth. So we'll look at that this morning. I want to give you a little bit of the context about where, we're at, where we are this morning in the Scripture. In James chapter 3, we just finished up, as I said a few minutes ago, talking about the power of our words. We did that last week. And then we get to verse 13, and, and as I read the rest of James from, from chapter 3, verse 13, for several passages after this, it really appears that, that the tone that James writes with sort of changes. If you'll notice in chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's this repeated statement that he uses, and he says, My brothers... And so, in a sense, he is addressing them as, as here's my, my family. Here's the people that, that I deeply love and care about. And he wants them to understand, look, I'm just coming to you from a, with a pastor's heart. I want to instruct you in the truth, he's saying. I, I want to guide you. And if we need to, let's correct things and let's get it going. But what's interesting, beginning in verse 13, all the way through verse 6 of chapter 5, that term, my brothers, is used one time. His tone changes just a little bit. And he's not going to smack us around, but I believe he's going to step on our toes just a tad. I believe he's going to say, now hold on just a second, let's correct some of these things that he begins to see in the life of those people that he's writing. And obviously, by implication, we receive the same instruction. And so his tone changes just a little bit. 
Look with me at verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? This is almost a rhetorical question. He says, he should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. Let me give you the truth for today, and then we'll work through it and explain it and try to help us see where this applies to our life. The basic truth for today from verse 13 is this. The acquisition of biblical wisdom always leads to biblical living. The acquisition of biblical wisdom always leads to biblical living. James says it there. Who is wise and understanding among you? You consider yourself wise. You think you've got it together. You understand some certain things. He says then, if you are wise, he should what? Show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. James makes it very clear that just having wisdom is not enough. Just having knowledge is not where it's at. That wisdom always leads to a lifestyle. It always leads to it being played out in our lives. You kind of compare this. If you want to write down this reference, go ahead and do it. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking, and he says this in chapter 7, verse 24. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And its collapse was great. The same person, the same people, rather, exposed to the same information. They acquired the knowledge. One of them acted on it, one of them didn't. And Jesus says it's not enough to acquire the knowledge, not enough to know the facts, not enough to get it, so to speak, do something about it. And then James, a few weeks ago, we looked at this and says in verse 22 of chapter 1, but be what? Doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. I believe we have many people who sit week in and week out in our churches. Maybe here, certainly across our country, it's, it's true who have deceived themselves, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that if I just go and learn, if I just accumulate some knowledge, that's good enough. Jesus says it's not. His brother James here says it's not. That biblical wisdom always must lead to biblical living. And so we know what biblical wisdom is. James in these following verses after 13 will, will give us a contrast. And he'll basically tell us this, that wisdom from below leads to worldly type of living, which the Bible condemns. And then he'll compare and contrast that rather with, with wisdom from above that leads to biblical living, which is God's goal for each and every one of us here this morning. The truth is, the wisdom that you live by dictates your decisions. And your decisions determine who you are and who you will become. I think you would agree that your life, as you look at it, is a product of your decisions. The decisions you have made have led you to where you are and will lead you to where you will go and who you will become. The wisdom with which you make those decisions is crucial. And I can't stress that enough. This stuff is huge and vastly important. So look with me again in, in chapter 3 of James. Let's look at these verses and then we'll roll through some of the contrasts here. Who is wise and understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, 
Don't brag and lie and defiance of the truth. Such wisdom, talking about wisdom from below, does not come down from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James here gives us this contrast, and he first talks about the wisdom that's from below. And he tells us that the source of that wisdom in verses 14 to 16 is this. And you'll see this on the back of your bulletin if you're following along there. The source of that wisdom from below is the world's pattern and man's sinful nature. The words you're writing down there are world and man. So you get the idea that it's our society, both now and in history, the society that has led up to the one we currently live in, and then just our basic sinful nature. That's what James is saying. That's the wisdom that's not from above, but from below. That's where we get it. We look to the world. We look inside, and we receive that. And it's shown in its characteristics, this wisdom from below. James uses some incredibly descriptive words, really, to tell us about that kind of wisdom uh, and, and the world and, and the people that are living in it and, and living with that kind of wisdom. He gives us some characteristics. You'll see those there on the left side of your bulletin. And I, I'm, I didn't give you any fill-in-the-blanks over there because I thought, you know, maybe there's something that will come to your mind and you write that down. He says one of the characteristics is this idea of envy and selfish ambition. And I don't have to really explain that one a whole lot to you. I think you kind of understand. That's a self-centered existence. That's a person who wants everything his or her way. Their ideas, thoughts, and standards are always right, no matter what. And that doesn't mean that they're a, a belligerent type person. That just means they live by their own ideas. They live by their own thoughts. They live by their own standards. And they decided that that is exactly the way that it should be. And in all of that, they are completely and utterly self-serving, though they may not admit it, that's the way that it is. The things they do are done mostly for personal gain, trying to gain a leg up, earn an extra dollar, whatever it may be, climb the ladder and so on, done mostly for personal gain. And usually with a person who lives according to this, envy and selfish ambition, there's not a lot of room for other people. And there's certainly no giving of credit to someone else who comes up with that idea and that better plan and whatever it may be. And then James talks about that, he says, don't brag and lie in defiance of the truth. But the truth is that envy and selfish ambition naturally lead to bragging and to lying. And a person like that has to make themselves look better. Somebody who's in it for themselves must brag and lie and make themselves feel and look better in front of others. And certainly this flies in the face of our entire theme for this book of James, which is authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity is based on the denial of self, not self-promotion not selfish ambition. And so he lists there the first characteristics of this worldly pattern, this sinful nature, this wisdom from below, envy, and selfish ambition. Then he gives three words that are really, I think, incredible. He says, not only that, but it's earthly. The wisdom from below is earthly. What he, what he means by that is simply that that kind of perspective on life is unable to look beyond, unable to go beyond the here and now. This is all there is. You know anybody that lives like that? You watch television, you'll find out that that's exactly what the world is all about. The here and the now. Get it now, get it as fast as you can, because this is all there is and we're running out of time. Earthly way of looking at things. Nancy and I drove to Texas a couple of weeks ago, and some friends of ours loaned us their GPS 
little device, little Garmin device. I've never had one before. It was the coolest thing in the world. I was messing with it. I was supposed to be driving, but I was messing with it, you know. And I don't recommend this. If there's any police officers in the crowd, then you may pass them. But anyway, but it was so neat. You type in where you want to go, and it tells you how to get there. Maybe you got one of those. This was new to me. You know, I was excited. And so what was, what was interesting, though, was that there were certain times when we got, we, we drove through Arkansas, and then we drove down through Texas. Now, I've been to Arkansas before, but I never had driven there before. I, I rode a bus with Murray State Baseball, and we went down there to play. And I don't pay any attention. I just get on the bus and go. I didn't have the first clue where I was in Arkansas. I knew I had to get to Little Rock and then Texarkana. In between, I was stuck. And so then we, had to, we, we went into Texas. What was amazing is this little GPS thing told us exactly where to go. But you know there were times when it was too close? I had to back up just a little bit because I needed to see a little bit bigger picture of where I was heading. Because just looking at the car, their little picture of a car on the interstate wasn't cutting for me. I knew where I was. I wanted to see where was I going and let me have a satellite view of this thing. I think in the same way, the person who has an earthly style of wisdom only sees the road right here. There's no backing up. There's no satellite view. There's no seeing of a bigger picture that this may not be all that there is. I think we have many people probably many in our crowd today, who live life as if this is all there is. And the truth is, we need to hit the little zoom out button and get a bigger picture of life. James here says that earthly type of wisdom is only concerned, only sees what's right in front of you, what's directly ahead, and does not back up to get the bigger picture. And that type of wisdom is restricted to only what mankind can think up, only what mankind can do. So this type of approach to life and decision-making is based only on the here and now. And that permeates our world today. Maybe, maybe, you'd, maybe you would watch commercials this week and just take note of how many of them are talking about you getting what you deserve right now. Probably 90%. Except for those one commercials where it talks about, you know, the pass it on and just being a good person kind of commercials. You know, a billionaire who's sponsoring that particular campaign. Other than that, it's all about earthly type of wisdom. So he says earthly wisdom. Then he says sensual. Now that's not talking about anything related to sex and all that. Basically what it could mean is, could be worded natural or based on senses, sensual. That's what he's talking about. And in this, man is in charge. And what I want is most important. My life and decisions are based upon what I feel what I desire, what I want to pursue, what I feel like doing on impulse. And so if I have that type of wisdom, then I just follow my gut feelings, whatever I want to do. What well, seems right to do that? You know, I talked to somebody the other day, and they had that experience. It kind of seems right. That's maybe what I ought to do. And we look inside to our own feelings and intuition. And certainly, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you've been made new, but that sinful nature is still there. And so I believe that James makes it clear that looking inside is not the place to look. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things. We still have that old sinful nature that lives in us. Even though we've been made new, we've been given a place in heaven, we still struggle when we look inside ourselves for answers. So James says earthly and sensual, man-centered, here and now kind of wisdom. And then he says, not only that, but it's demonic. 
And we get a little scared when we start talking about it. Now, wait just a minute here. Now, listen, I may be living for myself, but I'm not demon-possessed. Now, come on. Realize that the man and earth-centered type of wisdom, the here and now, the me, me, me kind of stuff, the, the, the fact that I'm not concerned about that satellite view, that has its root in Satan himself. And he has always promised unlimited wisdom. And he's only always delivered ultimate destruction. Even from the Garden of Eden, he tempted Adam and Eve to look away from what God had said, to look inside themselves, and I feel like that would be a good idea to do that. Live in the here and now. Don't worry about what is to come. And he's been doing that ever since. And Satan has definitely clouded our minds. He tempted us to deny what God said and put ourselves in God's place. He says the characteristics of that kind of wisdom are envy, selfish ambition. It's earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. And it results in two things, James says. Disorder and every kind of evil. That word disorder there has the idea of instability. And the truth is that when everybody is living according to what they want and what they think and living for themselves, living for the here and now, and only concerned about what they desire in the moment, that disorder is not far behind. You see that in, in any area of life. You see that in, in uh, a nation's economy when people refuse to spend less than what they make. You know where that comes from? Earthly, sensual, demonic type of wisdom. I need it now. I've got to get it. Let me spend more than I can possibly afford. And as a result, disorder ensues. You see that in families. When people are only in it for themselves, and they're going to do their thing, families split up because of that. You see that in, in workplaces, where people come to work, and who are they concerned about? One person, and that's them. I guarantee you work. If you have a job, you work with people like that. Hopefully you're not that person, you know. But, but you work with people like that. that they, you know, they're not going to do anything extra. They're going to be there right on time. And trust me, they're punching in on time. They're taking their breaks exactly when they're supposed to. Lunch is to the minute, and they are punching out and going home. And don't try to get them to do anything extra. People like that. Nobody here, of course. But, you know, churches experience that as well. It's everywhere. Disorder ensues when people only go for what they want. You see that in schools and on teams and everywhere. I don't have to tell you that that's the case. You know that when people live for themselves, disorder soon follows. And then he says, every kind of evil. Those, those words there have sort of the, the, the idea that what it produces is something that's worthless and of no account. Self-centered living and decision-making, obviously, it leads to things like anger and bitterness and slander and wrong attitudes and jealousy and being a source of strife and being hard to get along with and, and all of that. The truth is that the people who buy into the wisdom of the world, the here and now, the me-centered stuff, they often do anything they can to protect their interests. And we see that in the news all the time. Why do murders take place? Why does stealing take place? Why do bad business principles take place? Why do people leave their families? Why do, why do things like that happen? Well, because that's the result of envy, selfish ambition, earthly, sensual, demonic type of wisdom. It results in disorder and evil of every kind. James there gives us that picture. But thankfully, he contrasts it with wisdom from above. Verse 17 says this, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, 
full of mercy and good fruits without favoritism and hypocrisy. The source of all of that is God's revelation. Wisdom from above. God's revelation. God has revealed Himself to us in two ways. One is what's called general revelation. You look around. I got up this morning and saw my daughter, Nora. She's two and a half. And it hit me as I was thinking about what I was going to be preaching on this morning. That that little girl, they're walking through our house. There walks a miracle that I cannot explain. There walks an act of God that I have, I have, I have no answer for. I, I cannot explain that. Could we scientifically figure out how fertilization and conception happens? Sure. Can you figure out how crops grow? You put the stuff in the ground, it gets a little rain. Hopefully, we're still praying for that, by the way. Hopefully, hopefully it gets a little rain, and then all of a sudden it grows. But can you explain how? Well, it's only an act of God. But you look around in our world, and it is a world of, uh, in a universe of order, not chaos. God revealed Himself generally. And He's also revealed Himself specifically. Through His 66 books of the Bible, He tells us who He is, what He's about, who we are, and how we can get to Him, how much we need Him. God has revealed Himself. We get that wisdom from above through His revelation. And so we go to that revelation. Most specifically, we go to the Word of God. We don't go to TV advice or magazines or horoscopes and things like that. That's the earthly wisdom that the Bible condemns. We don't go to our own intuitions because we realize that the only source of real truth comes from God's revelation. Wisdom from above. James then lists the characteristics, and he does it in very quick fashion. He says, it's pure, meaning it's full, it's free, rather, of contamination. There's no deficiency in it. It's devoid of sin. God's revelation, God's wisdom, the wisdom that we should be living by, that's true of it all the time, that it's pure and it leads us to purity. It's also peace-loving, which just simply means that it's humble. And, and the truth is, when holiness is pursued by all, there will be peace. You look at your family. If you have a, a discord in some way, if there's been a disagreement, odds are that it's not just a difference of opinion that doesn't really matter. Odds are, at some point, somebody left the track of purity and holiness, and it caused disorder and evil things to be manifest in your home. You look at your workplace, look at your school, wherever. Typically, those who are peace-loving and humble, when, 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 when peace is present, it's because first purity has been present. And then he says it's gentle. This type of person who lives according to God's wisdom will be gentle. And that's just the idea of power under control. It sort of carries with it a connotation of that wild horse that's broken and made productive. Kind of like what we talked about a few weeks ago with the power of the tongue. And it's not talking about that you're willing to compromise the truth or you're weak. It just means your power is under control. You don't have to fly off the handle at everybody. He also says it's compliant. And my first response to that is, well, that just means you just give in to everybody. But really what that has the meaning of is just being reasonable. You're willing to listen. You're easy to get along with. You're not looking for a fight. You're just easy to get along with. You'll listen. You may not give in, but you'll listen. You'll be gentle about it. You're not going to compromise your biblically-based convictions, but you can disagree without being disagreeable. And there is a difference. Maybe you know a person who is disagreeable. I don't know. Maybe that's me. Anyway, full of mercy. He says, 
this person who lives according to God's wisdom will be full of mercy, a forgiving person, someone who helps those who are in need, even the people that have hurt them. They have compassion and graciousness toward that type of person. They're willing to get their hands dirty, so to speak, in ministering to other people. They share the burdens with that person. He says also, full of good fruits. That's the good works and good deeds that we do because, not so we win the love of Jesus, but because we love Jesus, we do those things. We live a good life full of good works. Then he says, without favoritism, someone who treats everyone with equal respect, equal love, who's not wavering back and forth in their convictions based upon the situation. Then he says, without hypocrisy. This type of person who lives according to God's wisdom, who makes decisions according to the Scripture, is sincere. The person who consistently and fully commits themselves and follows Jesus Christ. Those things that, that James mentions there, all those characteristics, they, they don't come through the world system. You're not going to find those things by watching television. You're not going to find them by talking to your friends at work. You're not going to find them by even looking inside yourself and just trusting your heart. You're not going to find them there. It only comes through submission to God's revelation. Submission and obedience to His Word and His Word alone. And the results of that are tied to today's truth. The result of this wisdom from above, this revelation of God, is biblical living. When we acquire that, when we understand and receive the wisdom from above, it always results in biblical living. Verse 18, he says, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Sort of highlighting this continuous cycle of righteousness, planted and harvested in a peaceful and harmonious relationship with God and between His people. The seeds of peace then produce righteousness, and those seeds of peace are right relationship with God and others. And that only comes through biblical living. Biblical living, obviously, is inseparably tied to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. Biblical living is not just being a good person. Biblical living is not just doing some nice things, some random acts of kindness. Biblical living is not just avoiding certain bad habits. Biblical living is inseparably tied to Jesus Christ. I can't stress that enough. I hope that you understand that biblical living, you don't take the Bible, I don't take the Bible and go out and say, well, I guess God just wants me to be good. I guess He just wants me to avoid this and that and be nice to this person who gives me a hard time and, okay, and apologize when I do something wrong. No, no, no. That's not the essence of biblical living. The essence of biblical living is Jesus Christ Himself. And so biblical living equals the example the teachings, and the mission of Jesus. And so if I am to live a biblical life based upon God's revelation and living out His wisdom, acquiring His wisdom, then living biblically, that means that I must abandon myself completely to the example, to the teachings, and to the mission of Jesus Christ, and to nothing else. I don't abandon myself to just being a nice person. I don't abandon myself to just avoiding certain habits. The essence of biblical living is abandonment, total commitment, all-in commitment to the example, to the teachings, and to the mission of Jesus Christ. His example, he gives in John chapter 13, of washing the feet of the disciples. 
Guys who would all run away, deny him, betray him. He washes and serves them, washing their feet. Then he lays down his life for all of humanity, reconciling, the Bible says, the world to God, giving us a way to be saved. Sacrifice, that's his example. He lived in perfect holiness, that's his example. He gives us his teachings. These passages in James here, when we're talking about all these things, the characteristics of godly wisdom, they point back to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the gentle. So on. Maybe you'd study this week, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Jesus gives us his teachings. Here's what the people of God are about. And then his mission. He said he came to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus came for sinful people. He came for a world who would crucify Him. He came for people who would spit on Him. He came for people who would hate Him and He died so they might have a way to get to God. His mission, to make disciples. He gathered 12 men around Him and poured His life for three years into them. And when He was gone, the 11 that remained joined with another and they set the world on fire started with 120 people in one day. It went to 3,120. And the world has never been the same. His mission to make disciples. And then he commissioned those disciples for evangelism. Matthew chapter 28, he told them, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them, he said, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That means do what you got to do to present the truth in such a way they might receive it and give their lives to Jesus and show that through believers' baptism. And he says, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. That's disciple them. He says, go and reach them and disciple them. That's his mission. That's the one he sent us on. And so now what do we do? Now that we understand there is a difference between worldly or wisdom from below and godly or wisdom from above. What do we do? How do we then respond to God's revelation? Living out those characteristics, being abandoned to the example, teaching, and mission of Jesus Christ. What do we do? Jesus said it Himself in Luke chapter 9. When He says this in chapter 9, verse 23, And He said to them all, if anyone wants to come with me, he must what? Deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What is a man benefited if he gains the whole world yet loses or forfeits himself? What does Jesus say that biblical living is all about? It is about total commitment, and abandonment to Him. Authentic Christianity is all-consuming. It's not one foot in and one foot out. It's all-consuming. And just like James says there in chapter 3, verse 13, the acquisition of biblical knowledge, the understanding of that always leads to biblical living, which means that we are always yielded to Jesus Christ, giving ourselves totally to Him. And so you and I have a choice to make. We're in desperate need of the wisdom that comes from above. We're in desperate need of it. Whether you're a person who's walked with Jesus for a long time, or maybe you just recently committed your life to Him, or maybe you are as far from Him as you think you can get, each one of us is in desperate need of biblical wisdom. 
And that only comes through total commitment to Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, that is not automatic. Just because you were born in America, a semi-Christian nation, just because you were born into a Christian home, or maybe you were raised and brought to church, just because you showed up this morning, or just because you come every single week, does not guarantee that place in heaven. Does not guarantee that wisdom from above. It is a choice you must make to yield and commit to Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I, I pray. My hope is that you will, and I will, commit completely to Him. Abandonment to His example. To live like Him. Abandonment to His teachings. To obey what He said. And abandonment to His mission to do what He has told us to do. And so maybe this morning you need to make that very first time decision to say, you know what? That's me. I, I realize my need for Jesus. And I want to receive Him into my life. There's no special words that you need to say. There's no prescribed prayer that I can give you that the words will be magical. But maybe this morning you just tell Jesus right there at your seat, Lord Jesus, I, I recognize my sin and I recognize that you are the only way to be saved from that sin. So forgive me. I believe in you. I know you are the Son of God, the only way to heaven. And I commit my life to you. Maybe that would be your statement to Jesus this morning. You tell him. Maybe for others this week, maybe you've already done that and you would just say, you know what, I'm going to do all I can to acquire biblical wisdom through God's revelation. I'm going to fight the influence of the world's pattern in my own sinful nature. And I'm going to do my best to live biblically, moment by moment. I'm going to put it into practice. That Bible quiz you took earlier is probably still somewhere on your paper. The real question is not how many of those answers you've got correct. Not how many of those that you've guessed and you happen to get one. The real answer is, do you live biblically? Are you completely abandoned to the example, to the teachings, to the mission of Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, help us. Maybe in moments of weakness or in need this morning, Help us to recognize the difference between wisdom from below that results in disorder and evil of every kind. It has at its source this world's pattern and our own sinful nature. Help us to know the difference between that and wisdom from above, which comes only through your revelation. It results in biblical living. Lord, help us to abandon ourselves to such living. To the example, to the teachings and to the mission of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we thank you that you sum up all those characteristics of wisdom from above. That you are pure and peace loving and gentle. You are easy in a sense to get along with. And so Lord, help us to do it your way. Because you said your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Thank you for the removal of our sin when we come to you believing. Help us, Lord, to leave here differently, committed and abandoned to you, wholeheartedly. We pray in Jesus' name.